Hi, and welcome to the Writers Forum on WRBH. I'm David Benedetto. Today, I'm going to be speaking with author James Donovan about his new book, Shoot for the Moon, The Space Race in the Extraordinary Voyage of Apollo 11. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, David. Thanks for having me on. So tell me, uh, what was kind of the impetus for starting to write this book and doing the research on it? Well, you know, I had done two books previously set in the 19th century, one on the Battle of the Alamo, one on the Battle of the Little Bighorn. I kind of wanted to move into the 20th century, and I was casting about for something when an editor friend I knew suggested uh, something to do with space or Apollo 11, possibly. And I thought it had been done to death, and I, you know, put that in, my, in the back of my head. But you know what? I couldn't stop thinking about it, which kind of as a, a sign, I think, and I started looking at, looking at what was out there, and I realized the book that I wanted to read about Apollo 11 and the space race hadn't been done, so that was the impetus. There's a few other reasons. One is that, you know, it's been almost 50 years. Uh, we're closing in July. It's true. 2019, and um, most people living today were not alive then, and some of them have forgotten all about it. And I, th- I thought of an accurate and lively account of that uh, was needed. Besides which, you may know this, but uh, there are some people who don't believe it actually happened. <laughs> it's true. They, there are quite a community of online people in that, that way, which is interesting mm-hmm. um, that that yeah. survives. So actually, less, less interesting and more just a fact of life these days. Mm-hmm. Yes. No, but I find that fascinating. And I know this is your first book to where uh, you're doing this research and the people that were involved with the events are actually still alive. So you get to use them as resources, right? You know, (laughs) kind of a mixed blessing because (laughs) the last two books I kept on saying, boy, I just wish somebody, I wish I could talk to somebody who was there. They would clear up so much, but of course, you know, you can't. It's been uh, many, many, many years ago. So this, I was excited about talking to the people who were really there. Well, this is one of the most recorded events in history. So there's plenty out there, video, interviews, written, uh, things like that. There's so much of it, of course. And and then I did a lot of new interviews with uh, plenty of people, which, which really helped. But um, one of the responsibilities, of course, is that when this book comes out, those people can point to something and say, you got it wrong. And I was terrified of that because uh, somebody who was there saying you got it wrong isn't the same as a historian saying you got something wrong with a battle that happened 140 years ago. True. No, exactly. And it looks like, you know, just from the blurbs that you got, uh, Mike Collins, who was the command module pilot in Apollo 11, seemed to be a big fan of the book. So what what did that feel like for you to have him kind of compliment you on that? Well, you know, if nobody ever said anything good about the book, that would be enough for me and it would validate it. Um, you know, here's the the main focus of my book, of course, uh, is and what it climaxes with is the Apollo 11 mission. And here's one of the three men that was on it. So he was there. He lived it. He read the whole book. I <clears throat> I worked up my nerve and asked him if he'd read the book for me, the manuscript when it was finished, because I had interviewed him a few times. He's just a, a, a complete gentleman and a very nice guy. And he called me and wanted to go over it because he had some notes. And we went over it and you know, very minor things. He couldn't remember saying a few things that uh, he had said because I found them somewhere. <laughs> of course, it was 50-plus years ago. Um, 
but yeah, the, what he said about my book is just floored me, and it it just floors me every time I think of it. No, I can see that. Um, what was your favorite part of this to write, uh, from like a historical perspective? Well, I thought the story needed to start with Sputnik. I think that's a natural start. Start when the Sputnik, the first artificial satellite, goes up, and of course everybody in uh, the United States is gobsmacked by this, uh, what we thought of as primitive step-riding, vodka-swilling Cossacks actually beat us on something technological. And, of course, the next thing people were expecting, lots of Americans, you know, nuclear bombs dropped from uh, larger satellites or space stations or the moon, because this was the middle of the Cold War, and it was serious stuff back then. People, A lot of people don't realize how serious it was. Uh, so I had to start there, and I, you've got to do some summary as you go 12 years to 1969. It can't be all scenes, of course, which is the most fun to write and the most fun to read. But I did occasionally pick out something that I thought needed expanded and needed to be done as a scene. In other words, as close to a novel as possible without making a single thing up, using techniques, novelistic techniques like, you know, point of view and dialogue, things like that, description, setting, make it more vivid. And one of the ones I really enjoyed that I did decide really needed uh, the whole scene was uh, the Gemini 8 mission of Neil Armstrong and Dave Scott, which almost ended in tragedy, but because of Armstrong's coolness under pressure, didn't. And that, 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 was, uh, that was very enjoyable, as was the final... The next to last chapter, which I called Descent to Luna, which uh, described the actual landing of the lunar module, which mm. which became a quiet, hairy situation, and a lot more dangerous than uh, almost everybody realizes. No, I, I can imagine that. And I find that kind of fascinating with our kind of best nonfiction writers out there, where they're able to take those novelistic devices and framing devices and implement those scenes. And I'm really interested in how as a writer, what that process was like for you? Because there's obviously some information that's really hard to get, specifically if you're writing from someone's point of view. So how do you fill in those gaps and still feel that you're doing an accurate depiction? Yeah, you can't use point of view unless, you know, one of the people involved, um, you know, there's material, testimony or interviews or anything uh, in which they describe what was going through their head. I've, Obviously, otherwise it's it's just not true, and you're just making stuff up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't do that. But fortunately, I found some uh, in the NASA files in in uh, Washington D.C. at the NASA, NASA History Office at NASA headquarters. There were <clears throat> files about uh, all sorts of stuff, and there was a Gemini Eight file with interviews conducted that I don't believe I've never seen them anywhere else. Conducted with the principals Dave Scott and Neil Armstrong, which included some dialogue, uh, both of them describing, um, you know, things that were said that were not recorded uh, because of, they were not in line of sight. They, they couldn't be recorded by, uh, uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, <clears throat> by the ground. Mm-hmm. But um, so that helped a lot when you have dialogue. And I don't think that's that those bits of dialogue I found had ever been used before. And uh, Scott wrote a book himself a few years ago in which he described it. And so you've got that source. And Armstrong's been um, 
you know, quoted here and there about it and asked about it. And so you combine all that material and as many transcripts as you can find with the with any dialogue. And there were, like I said, there wasn't much for Gemini 8. And, you know, you write it as a scene and, and, you know, I know what the inside of a Gemini capsule was like. Mm. And so you can describe that as you're going along and, you know, you combine it and uh, write it as well as you can and hope it works. Um, I I think it worked because Newsweek magazine uh, decided to excerpt that uh, sequence, the Gemini 8 sequence, uh, for their latest issue on the stands right now. Oh, wow. That's fantastic. Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get that. So how much of an expert in rocket science are you right now? <laughs> oh, great question. Because, <laughs> you know, I didn't have to worry about uh, those kinds of things or much technology or science when you're in the 19th century, uh, especially, you know, 1836 and 1876. Mm-hmm. But this was a quantum leap forward, of course. Not only was I doing uh, a 20th century subject, but tackling something that's just you know, uh, there's so much science and technology uh, in this story. It, it can often overwhelm it. And that's what I found in other books on this subject when I read them. They were written with so much science but by sometimes science writers or people who are very familiar with it, but they didn't realize that, you know, us mere mortals weren't familiar with it. And it's just overwhelming. And the human focus just gets lost. Uh, but I had to, you have to describe some of it because it is important to the story. Mm-hmm. And um, you've got to tamp it down for the most part, but, you know, there, there are times when I had to describe, you know, how or, orbital mechanics works or uh, the, the, meth- the modes, the methods uh, of how to get to the moon that were considered early on until they settled on lunar orbit rendezvous, um, things like that. So in some ways I feel like I, I took, a, you know, a few beginner courses in uh, – aeronautics and astronautics uh, to do this book. It'll probably all, all be forgotten soon. <laughs> it's a lot, I can imagine. Um, what was, I know you get to do some research in the NASA archives and just thorough research all around. Were there any specific things that stood out to you just as like completely revelatory things that you'd never even thought of or, or heard about before that you discovered in the process of writing? Well, yeah, um, a few things. Uh, for instance, uh, the Johnson Space Center started an oral history project, oh, I don't know, sometime in the 90s, mid to late 90s, I, I think. And they hired an entire office of people, uh, and they did this until, oh, maybe two years ago. And they started interviewing everybody and anyone in every discipline, every part of uh, NASA, from astronauts to flight controllers to engineers to flight planners and and administrative and they did extensive interviews with these people. And they're all available online, all transcribed, and they're just fabulous. There's, oh, I don't know how many there are, but there's probably close to a thousand or more. And wow. each of them, of course, is, is quite a few pages. I, I read everything, just about every single one of them, uh, through 1969, because my book kind of stops there. So I didn't have to read uh, Space Shuttle and Apollo Soyuz and, and all that stuff. But uh, I, wrote, I read thousands and thousands of pages with people that, you know, have never been interviewed anywhere else. Uh, and kind of the, the hidden figures of this story, you know, mm-hmm. engineers, because this was an engineering project more than anything else. Everybody thinks it's rocket scientists, but really it's just applying science that's already known, and you know, to, to a massive 
project, and so that takes engineers. And they had some interesting things to say. And one other thing was, you may know this, in, in mission control, there's all the uh, flight controllers, and each flight controller has an area of the flight, the mission that he has to, uh, you know, be in, uh, aware of and in charge of, uh, like, you know, the guidance or, you know, retro or all sorts of things. And every one of them, there's a, there's a loop, a communications loop. Um, you know, they've got a headphone on, and they're, list, they're talking to their back room that has, you know, even more people back there that know the little things that maybe they don't know. Hmm. And each of those back rooms is connected to laboratories and universities and manufacturers all over the country that contributed to that area. So if some problem came up, some emergency with some little switch, the guy that built the switch or was in charge of building the switch at Grumman or North American could be gotten on the line in, you know, 30 seconds and tell them what was wrong and how to fix it, which is pretty amazing. But anyway, these loops for each area, uh, a flight controller could listen to his loop and he could switch on as many others as he wanted to kind of monitor them. And these flight controllers got very good at listening to their main loop and then monitoring as many as a half a dozen other communications loops going on. One of one of the other areas or the air to ground between the cap, you know, the, the spacecraft and, uh, you know, mission control. And they could actually listen to theirs and monitor the others and, and pick out stuff they needed and maybe switch over there if they needed to, uh, which was pretty amazing. I found a loop between uh, Steve Bales, who was the guidance control off, uh, flight controller, very important, and he played a very important role, critical role in the landing when emergency lights started going off uh, in the capsule, in the, in the lander, excuse me. Uh, and his, the, back, the guy in the back room the 24-year-old computer whiz who knew the Apollo guidance computer like nobody else. And he figured out what those alarms were and was advising Bales, who had the uh, responsibility of calling an abort on the entire mission if he thought it was too dangerous to proceed. And uh, this guy in the back room kind of advised Bales, and Bales didn't do that, which, which he's been eternally grateful for, he told me, because he was terrified of having that responsibility and having to do that, huh. you know. But anyway, so that loop between those two was very interesting. I incorporated that into my uh, landing chapter. I can see that. That's so fascinating. I, you you see scenes in the, the control room depicted so often in media, and I've always wondered what are all these people doing on these individual screens and, like, who's behind that, who's in the headphones and stuff. That That's fascinating to, to learn that and to see how... Uh, interconnected all these things are in order to make this one mission happen and how that is for, for many missions, even today. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, in, in the sixties is where they grew this, uh, you know, they were just making it up as they went along. You know, Mercury was the first program and that was just one single person in a capsule at that time, just get into uh, space and after a couple missions and then getting into orbit, you know, going around the Earth for a few times. That was Mercury. That was followed by Gemini with two men uh, perfecting uh, techniques and skills that we would need to make Apollo work, like long duration, at least a week or more, and in a capsule. 
in a spacecraft. And uh, EVA, which is extravehicular activity, a spacewalk, we, we might have to do that. And then, of course, most important, rendezvous and docking, which was absolutely necessary for the lunar lander to, you know, which uh, separated from the command module. Uh, think of that as the mothership circling the moon, and then it would have to land and then come back up and join again. So rendezvous and docking was extremely important, and that's much more complicated than uh, than people think when you're going, you know, 10,000 miles an hour around the around the moon. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah. Um, uh, that's fascinating. I'm so it's so interesting that you got a chance to really do a deep dive in this. And um, sadly, I wish we could talk a little bit more, but um, but our time is kind of <laughs> at an end. Um, to kind of wrap us up, what are what are some books that you're reading right now that you're you're enjoying? And also, do you have any projects on the horizon after you finish with this book tour? Well, this book uh, was even more complicated than uh, the other two for reasons we've delved into a little. And um, I'm right now for about six or eight months, I've just been enjoying not having a book to do, no <laughs> deadlines, and just reading for pleasure. I like to read uh, both nonfiction and fiction. I'm looking forward to David McCullough's new book, The Pioneers, which will be out in uh, a couple months, I think, because he's just about the best popular historian there is out there. I love David McCullough. And, you know, just a few novels and, uh, and uh, thrillers, nothing worth mentioning, really. Just uh, pleasure reading. No, that's not bad at all. Well, um, I want to thank you again for joining us. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks, David. Pleasure was all mine.